This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on osteoarthritis. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm Clinical Director at BMJ. Osteoarthritis is the most common form of arthritis. It is more common in women than in men, with incidence increasing sharply around the age of 50. And it can cause complications, including inability to perform activities of daily living, spinal stenosis in cervical and lumbar OA, and also side effects of treatment. So it's vital we get diagnosis and management of this condition right. To give us more details about this problem and what we can do about it, we have on the line Paddy Belisi, Assistant Professor at Harvard Medical School and Director of the Musculoskeletal Medicine Unit at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. And importantly, Paddy is author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on this condition. So Paddy, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking, what exactly is osteoarthritis? So osteoarthritis is a degenerative and inflammatory process. It affects uh, the chondrocyte, the cartilage matrix, leading to degradation of the cartilage over time, changes in the subchondral bone, such as subchondral bone cyst, sclerosis, osteophytes, and also it affects the pericapsular uh, muscles and the capsule around the joint as well. So it's a bone, cartilage, and uh, muscle soft tissue disease as well. Okay, thank you. How, much, how do you make the diagnosis? So usually the diagnosis of osteoarthritis is straightforward usually. So you suspect it based on a chronic pain that started over at least months and years. You could see some uh, also, it affects usually the expected joints, such as hands, affecting the PIP and DIP joints, the middle phalanx and the distal phalanx, knees, hips. You could see some bony enlargement on the exam in the knees. And again, mostly the history. And of course, you confirm the diagnosis with radiographs with x-rays. Okay, thank you. And that moves us on neatly to, to tests. I, I wonder what tests might you need to do? So usually for the test, actually, you need to confirm diagnosis with radiographs. Uh, blood tests usually are not necessary to diagnose osteoarthritis, but they are usually used to differentiate osteoarthritis from other uh, type of arthritis, such as rheumatoid arthritis, if it's the picture, the clinical picture is not clear, or sometimes gout, and more importantly also to see actually if there's something else going on that causing the pain and the exacerbation of the symptoms on top of osteoarthritis, which is common. You could have osteoarthritis in the knee, and then you can have also gout in the knee. So if the clinical, if the picture, clinical picture seems to be more acute or more severe than what you would expect you know, from osteoarthritis, then you do additional tests to differentiate if there's something else going on in addition to the osteoarthritis. Okay, thank you. And I wonder, would all patients need x-rays or other scans, or does it depend on where the osteoarthritis might be? So, yeah, so uh, let's say if somebody, like 65-year-old woman comes with a clear, you know, 
Hebardine's and Bouchard's note in her, on her hand's exam that looks like osteoarthritis. Usually, you don't need necessarily to have x-rays. Sometimes the patient might ask you to get x-rays. Sometimes you want to get x-rays to evaluate the extent of the disease. Sometimes also you need to get x-rays, actually, if you, if you have involvement of the thumb with the first CMC joint, the calcometacalpal joint, which usually, uh, especially if you are concerning surgery for that, so because that usually benefits from surgical repair or resection of the end of the bone of the joint. So if you're considering surgery, of course, you need to get x-rays. But usually for knee osteoarthritis, we do get x-rays to evaluate, first confirm the diagnosis, make sure there's nothing else going on. Uh, hips, same thing, to confirm the diagnosis. Usually we do get at least one set of x-rays. You don't have to get x-rays serially or repeatedly, but just at least a baseline x-rays to evaluate the extent of, uh, of the disease. Okay, thank you. I wonder what would you say are the main pitfalls in diagnosis? So one thing I already touched uh, on, which is uh, to differentiate if there's something else going on besides osteoarthritis that's causing the pain. So again, you can have overlap with inflammatory arthritis, such as rheumatoid, with osteoarthritis, or especially crystals, like gout, pseudogout. And most importantly, you don't, don't want to miss septic arthritis. An, uh, an infection in the joint. Uh, other things to keep in mind, especially in the elderly, that they can even from a minor injury or even with no injury, they develop stress fracture. So if you have you've seen someone with osteoarthritis, let's say of the knee or the hip, and they have like really severe pain out of proportion to the degree and the extent of their osteoarthritis, then think about stress fractures. So if the exercise doesn't show that, could be occult, get an MRI, or get a CT scan, get additional imaging. Same thing, keep in mind also avascular necrosis, because you could have that overlapped or superimposed on the osteoarthritis. Okay, thank you. That, that's very helpful. And just to pick out some of those that you mentioned, distinguishing gout from osteoarthritis, what's the main things that you would look for to distinguish both conditions? So previous history of gout, uh, if a patient has previous history of gout, obviously if he has a swollen joint that's accessible for aspiration, I would aspirate the joint and uh, look for inflammatory fluid, which is usually more than 2,000 white blood cells per square millimeter, uh, mostly neutrophilic, and also look for crystals. So if you have an inflammatory synovial fluid, that means probably not osteoarthritis, something else going on, even if they have osteoarthritis. Also keep in mind uh, a presentation in atypical joint where you would expect to have osteoarthritis. If you have someone with uh, atypical presentation such as shoulder osteoarthritis, elbow osteoarthritis, ankle osteoarthritis, which usually you don't see primary osteoarthritis, think about something else and try to uh, get additional investigation to try to find out what the diagnosis could be beyond the clinical picture. Okay, thank you. And uh, along that same line, what about pseudogout versus osteoarthritis? How would yeah. you distinguish? Yeah, so pseudogout, the, the pseudogout is actually called the great mimic because it could be tricky and could mimic many clinical presentations, including osteoarthritis. So if it's acute, 
attack, which we, what we refer to as pseudogout, joint aspiration helps, shows again inflammatory synovial fluid. You could see the CPPD crystal, the calcium pyrophosphate crystals, but those are trickier to find than monosodium urate crystals in gout. But also pseudogout or gout, I mean, um, CPPD disease could have actually other clinical presentation. It could mimic rheumatoid arthritis, but also could mimic osteoarthritis. So sometimes you could see chondrocalcinosis, calcification in the cartilage on the x-rays, which doesn't mean that you have necessarily CPPD disease or pseudogout. It might be just simply innocent bystander finding on the radiograph in association with osteoarthritis. Or you could have also chondrocalcinosis and CPPD disease or pseudogout actually predisposing the patient to develop osteoarthritis. And those are sometimes hard to differentiate. You need to take a really good history, see if they started having uh, osteoarthritis at a young age, there's a family history of CPP disease, secondary etiology for CPP disease, such as hyperparathyroidism or hemochromatosis uh, um, or other secondary etiologies, and that will help you tell that there might be something as a secondary etiology for the osteoarthritis. Okay, thank you. And and just to clarify, CPPD. Yeah, so uh, that's calcium. T- that's the abbreviation of calcium pyrophosphate deposition disease. So CPPDDD. So it's uh, calcium pyrophosphate deposition disease because that's an umbrella for not only including pseudogout, which we which means that acute inflammatory arthritis similar to gout. The umbrella of CPPD disease in, includes non-asymptomatic chondrocalcinosis, osteoarthritis with chondrocalcinosis, uh, chronic inflammatory arthritis or pseudorheumatism or pseudorheumatoid arthritis and pseudogout. So again, it's, uh, that's why that's the kind of overall expression that we use for the, to, to describe the different phenotypes that you can get from calcium pyrophosphate crystals. Okay, thank you. And last one on differential diagnosis, and then we'll we'll move on. Uh, rheumatoid arthritis versus osteoarthritis. Yeah. So usually the clinical presentation is is different. Uh, rheumatoid arthritis more like subacute presentation, few weeks to few months. You should see more inflammatory signs on your exam. So you should detect synovitis on your clinical exam, uh, especially involving the small joints, hands and feet. Uh, a, an important differentiating factor from um, osteoarthritis of the hand is that rheumatoid arthritis involves the MCP joint, so the larger knuckle, the metacalcopharyngeal joints, uh, while it spares the DIP joints, so the distal knuckles. While osteoarthritis spares the MCP joint, the proximal knuckle, but it involves the middle and the distal knuckle. So the PIP, the proximal interpharyngeal joint, and the distal interpharyngeal joint. Usually, osteoarthritis does not involve the metacalcopharyngeal joint unless you have a secondary, again, secondary etiology for osteoarthritis, such as you go back to CPP disease, because that could give you osteoarthritis in the larger knuckles, which are the MCP joint. So if you see that, think about something else going on beside osteoarthritis or secondary etiology for osteoarthritis. And of course, blood tests in that case, like you get rheumatoid factor, you get anti-CCP antibodies to diagnose rheumatoid arthritis. The x-rays will show different findings as well. Then you can go down the route of getting additional tests 
Yeah, and that's where you need to do additional tests when you're not sure if this is osteoarthritis or not. But if the clinical picture is clearly osteoarthritis, you don't have to do any additional blood tests you do. Okay, thank you, great. Moving on to management. What's the mainstay of management of osteoarthritis? So of course, depending on which joint is involved, let's say uh, if it's uh, knee osteoarthritis and to some extent hip osteoarthritis, if the patient is overweight or obese, you need to recommend uh, weight management and loss of weight. For for the knee especially, there's good evidence that this reduces the progression of osteoarthritis. Uh, Other measures, uh, exercise, physical therapy, daily exercise program, or tailored exercise program to the patient. Uh, so these are lifestyle changes or modifications. For Of course, the weight will be less helpful for hands osteoarthritis uh, in regard to symptom management. Uh, but uh, other things for the hand, occupational therapy, other measures could be helpful. That's to start with. Other things will start usually with recommending topical, like NSAIDs, uh, for example, salicylic acid, like aspirin-like, uh, or diclofenac uh, gel, or other compounded NSAIDs, topical. The next step will be acetaminophen, which is not very efficacious in treating pain. Then will be oral NSAIDs, and uh, move on down the road for uh, pain management. And if they don't respond or they have side effects, you can switch to different NSAIDs. You can try additional modalities for pain management. You can also consider then injections, different types of injections for pain management, especially for hip and knee osteoarthritis, not so much for the hands. And uh, of course, eventually, the disease is progressed and severe, debilitating, limiting quality of life, uh, then you need to consider joint replacement. Okay, thank you. So that's a good kind of overview, but just to to pick on some of those one by one. Uh, and first of all, acetaminophen, it paracetamol for international listeners. But but to pick on other things, topical um, analgesia, what joints would that be most effective for, I wonder? So definitely the hands, because the joints are superficial. There's not much of tissue to go through. Uh, and the knees. Uh, of course, the feet, the first MPP joint, also the big toe. Uh, which uh, we can commonly see osteoarthritis, that could be helpful for that. So usually knees and small joints, uh, not so much for hip osteoarthritis. Topical don't really help that much with with knee away. Okay. And you also mentioned injections into the joints. Um, What um, would you be injecting into the joint and into which joints? Yeah. So most commonly we use... um, corticosteroid injections, so it could be methylprednisolone or triamcinolone, which are used most commonly, uh, between 40 to 80 milligrams if it's a large joint, such as hip and knee, which are the most commonly injected with steroids. We'll be using, I use my personally 80 milligram, but some use 40 milligram. There's no clear evidence. If one is better. There's some data suggesting that maybe 80 is better than 40 in a large joint. Um, milligram. And then... Uh, we don't usually, it's not recommended to inject the small joints in the hands, except maybe for the first CMC joint, so carpal metacarpal joint or the basal joint, which is the base of your thumb. Uh, 
other smaller joint, PIP and GIP joint, are the injecting less restored. Okay, thank you. And would you ever inject anything other than steroids? Of course. So, uh, hyaluronic acid, there are many combinations of hyaluronic acid. So, sometimes we do inject that. Again, the data on that is mixed because uh, the quality of the trials are not always great. Uh, one important thing about trials for uh, regarding injections for joints it's important to have a placebo that's comparable to the active uh, arm or the active drug that's being used. In other words, if you're looking to study injections, the placebo better to be an injection because the placebo effect actually is larger and stronger for injections and pills, for example. So you need actually to have a good comparator. So the, the trials that compared, for example, for example, hyaluronic acid injections to pills show actually the hyaluronic acid injection failing better, that could be that because it has better placebo effect as an injection, not because the hyaluronic acid is effective. Studies that compare the hyaluronic acid injections to saline injection showed actually somewhat of comparable results. So that's that's a part that, that's why it's not expensive and may or may not be that efficacious. And... Uh, uh, but we use them, especially if somebody does not respond to steroid injections. For, for which also the data is not that great, but they seem to give some relief for at least three to four weeks in steroid injections. So I use hyaluronic acid injections if someone does not respond to steroid injections. I use it at least once and see if they respond. If they do respond, then I repeat it again in six months. Okay, thank you. And non-steroidals. Do you routinely recommend gastro protection with non-steroidals? So, so if you do have risk factors, so we do recommend gastro protection. So, for example, if you're like uh, over the age of 55, if you have, of course, previous history of ulcers or GERD, we try to avoid NSAIDs. But if you have to use them, we use them in combination with PPI, proton pump inhibitor. Okay, thank you. And um, last one on management um, management modalities. What about topical capsaicin? So we use that. That's among the topical uh, medication we use. It's uh, I do recommend it to patients. Uh, it's over the counter. Uh, uh, the annoying part of the capsaicin, like you know, it's basically it's um, hot pepper based. So. So it might burn their eyes if they put their hands over their eyes. Or, and some some patients don't like that sensation also when they put it on their skin. But that's an option. Also, salicylic acid, uh, again, topicals is an option as well. There are many topical combinations that could uh, provide some relief, especially for mild, mild osteoarthritis. Okay. Thank you. And um, now moving on to pitfalls in management. What would you say the main pitfalls in management are? So the pitfall, of course, is uh, is uh, the first one will be if you have the wrong diagnosis, then the treatment will defer vastly. So if you're missing again a secondary cause for osteoarthritis that you're not treating, or if you're missing something that actually causing the exacerbation of symptoms on top of osteoarthritis. Again, we talk about stress fracture, avascular necrosis, crystal-induced arthritis such as gout and pseudogout, or infection. 
So, or even rheumatoid arthritis. So if you're missing an inflammatory arthritis, which needs to be managed differently, then that will be one, the first pitfall that comes to mind for the management of osteoarthritis. Okay, thank you. Um, and last question is a question about questions. What have we missed? What other things do you commonly get asked about osteoarthritis? Yeah, so so I think just to follow up on the pitfalls of the management also, uh, again, you have to look at the safety of the drugs and uh, and see if the really risks outweigh the benefits uh, for NSAIDs, among other drugs, and see how much actually they are helping your patient in controlling their pain or not. Uh, and uh, also the same thing for injections. If they are not really benefiting your patient, I would not keep doing the injections because it's not really worth uh, the small risk of, uh, from the injections. And, uh, and, not, uh, and not delay the patient's referral for joint replacement if they have advanced disease and they are not responding to all medical treatment. Also, um, narcotics, sometimes there is a place for narcotics in pain control, but I would keep the dose to the minimum. And uh, patients sometimes ask for narcotic because their pain is not controlled with NSAID. So usually um, there are different types of narcotics you use. I would use it with a milder one. But again, if it comes to that, then usually we use narcotics if they are not surgical candidate and there are really no other options to give them. So other questions that I get asked if there is any uh, cartilage rebuilding strategies for other treatments for osteoarthritis, including PRP, platelet-rich plasma, or stem cell therapy. So, so unfortunately, uh, the data on uh, PRP, platelet-rich plasma, which they take uh, the patient's own blood, they take out the platelets using uh, a special centrifuge machine in the clinic, and then we inject them. The data on that is mixed. Again, it's important to see what's the control group is using. They're using a sham injection, the saline comparative, that's better. So, for example, like a good clinical trial around close to 300 patients showed actually there was no difference between saline and PRP. Well, there was meta-analysis, including the smaller trials that they are not of the same good quality, showed actually that there might be some benefit from PRP injection. But most of those treatments, if they are going to help, will be helpful for pain. They are not going to help reverse the disease or build up cartilage. Um, same thing for stem cell. Stem cell even more complicated because so, there are so many different cells, type of cells, and unfortunately, people are taking advantage of, uh, of it commercially because it's out-of-pocket expense for the patient, and uh, patients are paying for it without really clear benefit. Uh, I don't know about Europe, but in the U.S., uh, that's... Uh, that has been happening more often. And uh, there are other treatments that uh, for the future that we are, hopefully they'll show some benefit. There's um, uh, spermethrin or the FGF18, so fibroblast growth factor. Phase two trials was done that showed that actually helped increasing the thickness of the cartilage, but did not have any clinical benefit, unfortunately, in regarding to pains after two years. So we don't know again where that will go. Uh, so there are strategies. Uh, people are looking to produce some something similar to the collagen, to the cartilage matrix and see if that helps rebuilding the cartilage. There's also surgeries 
for cartilage building, like allograft. But that usually works for a small legion, small loss of cartilage in younger people, not for diffuse cartilage loss and osteoarthritis. Okay. Thank you very much, Fadi. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope this has been helpful, and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and have a look at the content of this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again.